welcome to Podiatrics Medical Podcasts. Today's podcast is on pyloric stenosis. So we're going to talk about what pyloric stenosis is, a bit about the pathophysiology, and then we're going to talk about um, some of the important clinical features and how we might go and manage someone with pyloric stenosis. So the first thing to say is let's break down those two words. So what does pyloric stenosis mean? Well, we've basically got two words. We've got pyloric or pylorus, which is the bit of the stomach which attaches to the duodenum. And we've got stenosis, which is an abnormal narrowing of a passage in the body. So put those two words together and we have got a bit of the stomach which attaches to the duodenum, which has become narrowed. So it's a condition um, sometimes known as infantile hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, which is when you get abnormal thickening of the pylorus. And this can lead to gastric outlet obstruction where basically there is a blockage to get um, gastric fluid and gastric secretions out of the stomach. Infants tend to be well at birth and then somewhere around four weeks of age, the estimates are three to six, which is what's conventionally taught, three to six weeks of age, they will prevent, present with non-bilious projectile vomiting. Vomiting, especially with the amount they're vomiting, can lead to dehydration and weight loss. So the exact cause is unknown. Um, but there are certain risk factors. So some studies have shown that an increase in incidence when they've had macrolide antibiotics, okay? Remember macrolides um, can have a prokinetic effect, so they can um, get the gut motility going up. Um, we've also said things like it's more common in those that are bottle feeding in those that are preterm with a cesarean section delivery and firstborn infants. And it is much more common in males compared to females with a ratio about four to one. So when we talk about what can cause it, there's a few things that are probably worth at least contemplating um, when we talk about pyloric stenosis. We can of course delve into this um, a little bit more today but I think it's worth at least thinking about why do people get pyloric stenosis? So I hated revising um, pyloric stenosis because people would often say, well, we just don't know. Um, we just don't know what causes um, pyloric stenosis. And this was really frustrating for me because I thought, well, there are certain conditions that we have no idea about. But why is pyloric stenosis one of these such conditions? So there will be many theories, but I'm going to talk to you about the main one because the other ones aren't particularly important. So John Thompson was a doctor at Edinburgh and he looked at 100 cases um, of pyloric stenosis in kind of 1894 onwards. And he saw these patients and he said, well, 
there's a few things that he noticed is that the pylorus was swollen and there was circular muscle hypertrophy muscles in the pylorus and he began to say well what what do we have you know what on earth has caused um these patients to have a thickened pylorus and he came up with this theory that potentially this pyloric stenosis was due to work hypertrophy which basically means that the pylorus was working more than normal that led to hypertrophy in much the way that you get beta cell hyperplasia in diabetes and you get um, cardiac hypertrophy in heart failure and hypertension that this increased work resulted in hypertrophy so years and years then we had facts we had risk factors it's much more common in males the onset of this non-bilious projectile vomiting happened around the age of four weeks and it was much more common in those that were firstborn babies okay so there were more subtle things as well macrolide antibiotics such as erythromycin when patients were treated with it for whooping cough there was an increased risk of those thought at the time those treated with macrolide antibiotics compared to those not treated with antibiotics and those that um, went on to develop pyloric stenosis there was an association that in those with pertussis those treated with macrolides that have a prokinetic effect increased the risk of pyloric stenosis and no one really knew so there were lots of theories some of them quite laughable some of them more plausible there were theories involving nitric oxide synthesis that's led people to measure nitric oxide levels um, and that was quickly kind of put to bed there were other things like genetic factors and they were looking at is it more common in um, in those that are twins or has it actually got a multi-genetic a multifactorial inheritance which is probably where we were heading towards neonatal infections were talked about but a lot of studies especially that did throat swabs um, and nasopharyngeal aspirates revealed that there was no um, association there the one that i'm going to talk about and the one that i'm most interested in to kind of at least go some way to answering why do patients get pyloric stenosis and why does it occur when it does at kind of four to six weeks of age was the hyperacidity theory and i'm really interested in this because actually physiologically it makes sense and the doctors who i asked well what actually causes pyloric stenosis it may actually give an answer so i'm going to talk to you a bit about this and actually this will be the bulk of the podcast um, because it's probably the most interesting bit of it and there's a lot of applicable physiology so i don't apologize for going quite physiology heavy on this particular topic so normal in normal development neonatal which is kind of what we're talking about gastrin and gastric acidity rises in the first few weeks after birth okay so neonates have a high amount of gastrin and actually which is quite strange the amount of gastrin that neonates produce is actually more than adult levels okay there is no subsequent increase in gastrin after a feed 
So what does this actually tell us? Well, early gastrin secretion, so gastrin secretion in neonates is not under negative feedback, okay? Uh, which makes sense, isn't it? So um, there is no further gastrin increase after, after a feed. So it is maximally stimulated and it's acting physiologically like Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. So we have got a gastrinoma, basically. So early neonate um, gastrin secretion is really high. It's higher than adults and isn't subject to negative feedback. So it's almost acting autonomously. So gastric acidity increases during this time as well, which is what we'd imagine. So if your gastrin went up, your gastric acidity would go up as well. And it reaches a peak at about two to three weeks and then falls. So we then have the establishment of negative feedback and um, falling gastrin happens. So your gastrin levels fall and um, you get a post-feed increase in gastrin. So we actually have feedback mechanism working properly. Okay, so that's one of the things that we see here is actually we get an establishment of a normal feedback mechanism. So that's really, really important from our perspective and it's really crucial when we want to begin to understand um, what all happens in this okay so I hope this bit of physiology has began to make make sense so what does gastrin do so gastrin is a peptide hormone and it's responsible for enhancing gastric mucosal growth gastric motility and secretion of hydrochloric acid into the stomach. So that's what gastrin does. So if we talk about that again, neonatal gastrin levels are really high and we don't have establishment of feedback. Gastric acidity goes up and around two to three weeks, um, gastrin levels fall and a post-feed increase in gastrin is recorded for the first time. So other observations that are really important is that um, the hyperacidity in normal babies is of little significance. To be honest, we don't care about this normal physiology. So if a baby had a greater mass of parietal cells, and hyperacidity this is different okay because their peak acidity is going to be dangerously high really really high and all this really really high acidity is going to enter the duodenum as it would and this can lead to contraction of the pyloric sphincter repeated acid stimulation through this really really high acidity in those that have got a greater mass of parietal cells will cause contraction of the pyloric sphincter and sphincter hypertrophy. When you get gastric outlet obstruction, further acid secretion happens and that makes it even worse. Okay? So, this is also complicated by if a vomiting child is continuously forced to feed 
this makes the situation even worse. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. So let's talk about that again. So babies with pyloric stenosis, do they have hypericidity? So one way that's been historically done is you just measure the fasting pH of stomach contents in those with pyloric stenosis and normal controls. Okay. So remember that pH is a logarithmic scale. So you'll only really get a significant pH change um, when you've got massively different acidities. Okay. So when we compare acid secretion rates with normal and pyloric stenosis babies, it's much higher. So measuring the fasting pH because of the logarithmic scale which pH relies upon is not particularly useful. But looking at gastric acid secretion is much higher in those um, babies that have pyloric stenosis. If you do the, we'll talk about later, uh, a pyloromyomotomy, then actually your hypericidity persists past this point. So retaining acid is not the cause in these patients. It's probably because of acid secretion. And these patients with pyloric stenosis have an increased risk of having problems with um, hypericidity in later life. So this is obviously a problem with gastric acid secretion. Okay, so that's that's quite important. So there we go. Why is it more common in males? Well, one study has looked at the acid secretion between um, 43 premature, but otherwise normal infants. And it, this was measured in 10 consecutive days after birth. So the average acidity for boys was 61 units compared to 35 for girls, okay? Um, adult males have a greater parietal cell mass than females, so you would imagine um, this would be echoed in boys. So we actually think this is potentially because boys, um, males, have a greater parietal cell mass and therefore uh, will have higher acidity. And duodenal ulcer disease is five times more common in males than females. So this is potentially what happens. And you might be asking the question, well, Tom, why doesn't pyloric stenosis happen at birth? If they're that acidic and they suffer with acidity, why doesn't pyloric stenosis happen at birth? Why does it happen at four weeks of age? Well, we know that actually peak acid levels take two to three weeks to reach their peak. What does this acid do? We've talked about it. So this leads to work hypertrophy of the sphincter and really high levels uh, have a trophic effect, so a growth effect on the pylorus. So this explains why you get the condition several weeks after birth rather than with birth. Why is there a genetic component? Because people say, well, having a family history is significant. And this is probably more likely because um, the inherited component that we're looking at is not this grand um, genetic polymorphism. What we're probably looking at is that there's a tendency to have a higher parietal cell mass. 
So that's the component that we're looking at. So why is it more common in boys? Because males have a higher parietal cell mass. Why can it potentially have a family history? Is because higher parietal cell mass tends to run in the family. So hopefully I haven't bored you too much with that. So let's get back to it. So it affects two to five of every thousand live births per, per year. We've kind of exhausted why it might happen. It's got a male to female ratio of four to one. There is a familial link, but it's polygenic and potentially related to this inherited higher parietal cell mass. Um, what happens? So you get hypertrophy and hyperplasia of the circular and longitudinal muscles of the pylorus. Thickening leads to narrowing, which is the stenosis. Um, and the muscles of the pylorus become thickened. The mucosa becomes edematous. And when really severe, the stomach becomes dilated secondary to gastric outlet obstruction because of the thickened and obstructed pylorus. This can lead to postprandial, so after eating, non-bilious projectile vomiting. So what do we need to look out for in our history? So they tend to present with projectile non-bilious vomiting. Why is it non-bilious? Because the obstruction is um, in the pylorus, which is proximal to D2, which is where your ampulla avata um, leads to bile entering the duodenum. So causes of non-bilious vomiting tend to be proximal to D2. Distal to D2 will give you projectile vomiting. It can be intermittent or it can be after each feed. It shouldn't be bilious. And the thickened pylorus can be felt as an olive-shaped mass in the right upper quadrant. And on a test feed, you can see these reverse peristaltic waves. If there's been a significant amount of vomiting, the infants may be dehydrated. So that could be um, a depressed fontanelle dry mucous membranes, not producing tears, poor skin turgor and lethargy. In severe cases, they may even have a hemodynamic compromise and have a prolonged capillary refill time. The classic electrolyte abnormality that you get is called a hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. And it might be worth thinking, well, why do you get that? So you get vomiting that leads to loss of potassium and chloride. Remember that gastric juice, in comparison to something like saliva and other things, and bile and pancreatic juice, gastric juice has a sodium content of between 70 and 120, whereas bile and pancreatic juice, 140 millimoles per litre. The potassium content of gastric juice, however, is 10 millimoles per litre, um, is the potassium content of gastric juice, 10 compared to say pancreatic or bile that's five millimoles per litre. The chloride is also quite high as well at 100 millimoles per litre. So because gastric juice is quite rich in potassium and chloride and less so in sodium, you predominantly have um, this phenomenon where you do lose sodium, uh, but you'll also lose um, potassium and chloride. Interestingly, what happens is in your distal tubule, your body, normally because the sodium goes down as well, retains sodium in the collecting ducts at the expense of hydrogen. You lose hydrogen. And remember, if your hydrogen goes up, you become acidotic. If your hydrogen goes down, you become alkalotic. So that explains your hypokalemic, hypochloremic, 
metabolic alkalosis. You lose the uh, potassium and the chloride in the vomitus and you have an alkalosis because you get rid of hydrogen at the expense of retaining sodium. So we'll now talk about some of the imaging things. So on a plain radiograph, you might see a distended stomach. That's pretty much it. If you were to do um, an upper GI series, okay, which is normally done to exclude more serious causes of pathology, you can say, sometimes you can see peri peristaltic waves or the caterpillar sign. You can see a delayed gastric emptying and you see a stretched pylorus as well. And you can see a beak-shaped entrance to the pylorus, which is due to the narrowing. Ultrasound is the imaging of choice. So this is what we're going to focus on now. So in the right clinical setting with the correct clinical history, this is really, really good. It's incapable of finding other diagnoses such as a volvulus. Um, so it's very good if you're suspecting pyloric stenosis. So the hypertrophic um, pylorus is hypoechoic, which is very good. Um, the pylorus itself is quite thick, so it tends to um, have a diameter of greater than three millimeters, which is our most accurate measurement for pyloric stenosis. The length tends to be predominantly a little bit longer and the transverse diameter will go up as well. So there's a few kind of um, signs that you can see, things like donut signs and other things. But basically, that's what you're looking at, is you're looking at the pyloric muscle thickness being greater than three millimetres. How do we treat it? Okay, so again, we've talked about some of the things that we can see. Um, so we're looking at a pyloric wall thickness of greater than three millimetres. You can also see things like target signs and what have you, but ultrasonography is what we need to look at. Um, first medical management is rehydration and collect, uh, correction of your electrolyte imbalances. So that is usually some 5% dextrose with normally some potassium and sodium chloride in, um, which is what we need to do. Normally then consider a nasogastric tube. And once the infant is rehydrated and stable, surgery is the next step. And normally what happens is a pylo, okay, myon, pyloromyotomy. So pyloro meaning pylorus, myo meaning muscle, otomy, um, divisional removal. So this is when the pyloric muscle is divided down to the submucosa. And that's basically what happens. Um, differential diagnosis is a midgut volvulus, which is when you get malrotated bowel twisting, and this can present in the first month of life, crucially with bilious, not non-bilious vomiting. And if you do an upper GI series, upper GI contrast, it will show a corkscrew appearance of the bowel showing that it's twisting. Your other differential diagnosis is things like gastroenteritis. So gastroenteritis, non-bilious vomiting, acute renal failure, sepsis, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis and trauma, okay? Urinary tract infection, so don't get fixated on it being pyloric stenosis, but definitely think about 
it in someone around the age of one month who is presenting with projectile non-bilious vomiting. So that's been today's podcast on pyloric stenosis. I hope it's been very useful. Um, and on to the next podcast. Any suggestions, um, I'll put my email in the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Uh-huh.